that mindset shift of just being kinder to myself and enjoying the experience really allowed me to be a better athlete and a much happier person. Hi everyone, my name is Dr. Pete Olushaga and this is 80% Mental, a podcast all about the psychology of sport and performance. And to be quite honest with you, just whatever I want to talk about really. Um, a, a warm welcome uh, to yet another episode of this third series in which I'm exploring the mental aspects of as many different areas of performance as I can. And today I'm going to be talking about the psychology of strength. And I'm going to jump straight in and introduce my guest today, none other than the absolutely brilliant Jenny Tong. Jenny, welcome to 80% Mental. Hello, thank you for having me. No, you're more than welcome. I, I normally start with a little bit of an introduction, so I'm going to, I'm going to read out yours if that's all right. Um, Jenny is a GB international weightlifter, multiple British record holder and British weightlifting pathway and national youth coach. Uh, She's also recently completed a master's degree in law at York University, so manages training alongside studying, working, and coaching, and running Sheffield's award-winning weightlifting club. So, Jenny, once again, welcome to the podcast. That's that's a lot of stuff you've got going on there. Yeah, it's uh, it all feeds into one. You'd be amazed how all these things align, um, and I've been very fortunate that I've kind of just fallen into... Uh, a sport and a, and a job that you know I really love and yeah feeds into itself awesome well we'll get into some of the, the details of what you actually do in a, in a little while but I want to start with the uh, with the weightlifting stuff because that's what we're here to talk about the psychology of strength and we'll talk about some of the the mental aspects of performance a little bit later on but you know th- there'll be lots of people listening to this who go to the gym who work out to lift a few weights every now and then but can you can you explain the difference between what someone might do at their local pure gym, other gyms are available, uh, and maybe what you do as an international weightlifter? Like, what does your sport specifically involve? So my sport is the old traditional sport of Olympic weightlifting. So it's one of the original Olympic sports. So the discipline of Olympic weightlifting consists of two lifts. One is a snatch, which is a floor to overhead lift. And the second is a clean and jerk. So you lift the weight from the floor to your chest and then from your chest overhead. It obviously requires a lot of strength, a lot of power and a lot of technical execution. It's a very dynamic movement. the difference between what you might, you know, see with that and what you do at the gym, uh, tend to see more powerlifting style training done at the gym as well as free weight training. Uh, although I do like to say that, you know, over the past few years, weightlifting has seen a massive growth in participation. So now it's really cool because we are going to a pure gym or a JD. And there are people there doing Olympic lifts, which just wasn't the case when I first got into the sport. So, yeah, you tend to see much more conventional style training strength lifts done in the gym. Uh, but there is a big growth in weightlifting participation, which is really cool. No, that's awesome. And uh, what, what do you think's driven that? What do you think sort of really sort of pushed that that change? You know, you're seeing people doing Olympic lifts in, in gyms. Um. Honestly, the, the, the main factor has probably been CrossFit. 
for the purists, that's really that's a really difficult thing to accept. But CrossFit <laughs> has done absolute wonders for our sport and and the not just the participation levels, but the people who then engage with Olympic lifts via a different means that is CrossFit, and then go, do you know what? I actually really like this. I really enjoy this, and then they stick at it, and so they go to the gym, they do it, and then other people see it, and they're like, what are you doing? And you know, it, that's how these things grow. And so what we've seen now is a massive boom in the talent that is coming out of the CrossFit space and crossing over to weightlifting, and the the level of accessibility. You don't need to find a weightlifting specific gym to be able to do weightlifting now. All of the the, the general conventional high street gyms have Olympic weightlifting equipment. So it's so much more accessible. I think CrossFit gets a bad press sometimes, and I think it's probably mostly just because of the pull-ups. But, you know, I, I, what's um, – CrossFit can't do pull-ups. What's, uh, what, what's a, typical, a typical training cycle look like for you then? Is it um, – are you constantly training for competitions? Do competitions come around quite a lot, or is it, you know, much more – focused on training with competitions coming around so fairly fairly infrequently uh so the 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 obvious ones you're british in your english championship so you're going to train around those uh and then your international qualifiers so for the europeans and the world championships you've you've got to qualify so say for instance you don't hit the qualification standard at your national championships you'll then have to factor in a qualification comp ahead of the the international championships so Mm. with weightlifting we don't have a season which makes these things very difficult and on any given year the weightlifting calendar will vary quite significantly uh you know, roughly in the same area but there's sometimes some overlaps things will get cancelled but generally speaking, we try and aim for 12 to 16 week training blocks, regardless of where the, the competition is in the calendar. You'll just move that block along and you'll do, you know, the, the typical general prep. You'll do a, a technical, you'll do a strength block and then a competition block. And you just kind of keep cycling that. You've got to factor in then weight cuts as well. Say, so for instance, myself. I was, when I first started, I was an under 53 kilo lifter. I've moved up now as as I've built a little bit more muscle, but you kind of have to factor that into your training block and, and sometimes around your lifestyle and, and that kind of stuff. I want, I want to get into some of the, like I said, some of the mental aspects of performance uh, a little bit later on, but just kind of going right back to the beginning. You know, how you mentioned a lot of people find the sport through CrossFit. How did you get into this sport in the first place? Uh, I found the sport by chance, coincidence. I was looking for a sport. I came to university about seven and a half years ago. I came up to Sheffield for university seven and a half years ago, Mm. having lived in London for two years. And in that time, I lost my mum. And I just found a, a routine in going out partying and going to college and then going out drinking. And what I wanted from my university experience wasn't that. It wasn't partying and the nightlife. What I wanted from my university experience was knowledge and discipline and experiences. 
So very quickly when I got to university, I sought out the sports fair and I already had a rough idea what I wanted to do. I come from a rugby family, so naturally I was going to be drawn slightly to rugby and I wanted to do wrestling. And I remember looking down the, the university prospectus. I did judo growing up, so I kind of thought, oh, you know, judo wrestling is good crossover. I'm going down the kind of list of sports they offer and I'm down in the W's looking for wrestling and there was no wrestling, but there was weightlifting. I was like, mm, yeah, maybe I could do that. I've been to gym a few times. I quite enjoy the the, the barbells and the lifting. Anyway, I'm, I'm at the sports fair and I walk down this, this hall and there's all these stands and I'm walking towards rugby and I see strength sports out the corner of my eye, but I second guess myself. I was like, I'm not going to go to them. I'm going to go to rugby. <laughs> and I'm walking to rugby and I hear someone over the crowd shout, you. And I don't know what it was, but there was just something about <laughs> the way that that you was directed that I thought, she's speaking to me. Whoever shouted that is directing that at me. So I turned and it was a girl at the strength sports stand and she just pointed at me and she went, you look like you'd make a good weightlifter. So I was like, all right, well, it was a free taster session. So I don't know anyone. I've got nothing better to do. Why not? So I went along and I loved it and I stuck at it. And it provided me with an outlet outside of my studying that wasn't partying. It, uh, you know, I, I found a great group of friends. It provided me the discipline that I needed to keep me focused on my studies and nourished elsewhere and it really changed the direction of my life because I went to university to study politics and international relations I had these big plans to you know go into social justice and politics and possibly work in government and here I am seven and a half years later lifting weights for a living (laughs) Well, that's awesome though it's just a, a kind of chance encounter like that and it's given you so much like I say it not only has given you everything that you've done in weightlifting but changed the direction of your life completely and gave you so much so much uh so much else as well um Absolutely. so s- speaking of that then so you're, you've obviously achieved quite a lot you know I mentioned in the intro that you uh were a multiple British record holder what are some of the things that you've achieved so far in the in the sport so I broke my first, I broke a few age group records and then my, it was my second British senior record, which was a 78 kilo snatch at under 53 kilo body weight at a British University Championships, which was probably the most memorable experience I'll ever have in weightlifting because it was it was it was the the first the first time I came off a platform at a competition and I'd, I'd not only broken this British senior record that it's a thing that no one else had done before mm-hmm. and I did that and I was like wow but not only did I do that it felt really good and it felt really easy and I didn't you know there wasn't loads of dramatics in terms of me like having to fight for it and I just kind of came off elated and overjoyed and then it was a real double-edged sword because 
I was so overjoyed by having done this record that it just completely sapped me of all of my energy emotionally uh, that when I went into the clean and jerks, I think I only managed the clean and jerk something like five kilos more than I'd just snatched, which for anybody who knows anything about weightlifting is way off. Um, but that was... <laughs> That, that was a, a real significant moment for me. Um, and then shortly after that, I was named um, Whole Sports Personality of the Year, which was a real surprise and a real honour and privilege because I like to represent where I'm from. I actually grew up in the south of Spain, but I've always had this thick northern accent and I was so going to say you don't, you don't sound like you grew up in. Uh, no, in no, I moved. I moved back to the UK when I was fourteen. Right. But I've always, I've always had this really thick accent, and so f- to to have you know people from my hometown want to celebrate me that 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 meant a lot. Not just in terms of you know getting getting the award, but actually for mm. for it to mean something to them as well. I that meant a lot. And yeah, the you know, there's competitions and titles and stuff like that. I, last year was simultaneously the hardest and worst year of my weightlifting career, whilst also being the best. I won the British and English Championships. I'd never won a British and English Championships before, but I won. I won last year, and mm. I put up a real fight for the British Championships. And again, you know, it was one of those where I'll never I'll never forget how focused I was. I mean, I know we're going to get into it later, but how focused I was, how in my own lane I was. And on my last lift, I had to fight like I'd never fought before. And I made it. And that was like the the penny dropped at that moment. There was still a few lifts to go and I, I could have not won, but the penny dropped and I was like, you did everything you could have done and you need to be proud of that. And so a lot of my a lot of my proudest moments and my greatest achievements in this the sport for me have been not necessarily around the accolade it, itself, but what that experience has meant for me and what I've taken from that experience because that British Championships at the start of 2022 changed my whole entire outlook on the com- on any competition moving forward. It was the first competition I was able to be fully proud of myself for, for, for my efforts. Not just because I won, because that wouldn't have mattered, but because of what each lift meant and how I approached it. And yeah, it was just a real win. Um, so as an athlete, they they are my kind of, uh, they're my pinnacle moments thus far. And obviously, you know, we said that you just, uh, you just got your, your master's degree in law as well. So achievements outside of, of the sporting arena. Yeah, yeah. I uh, I love weightlifting. I love weightlifting, but it's not my life. Weightlifting doesn't doesn't define me and doesn't define who I am. I was a, a whole person before I found the sport, and I am a whole person without it. And regardless of what weightlifting has done for me, I never set out for it to be a career. I didn't go into the sport 
thinking I'm going to make a, a living out of this. And so it's a privilege that I get to, but simultaneously I always wanted to ensure that I was looking ahead and looking beyond what is was just in front of me. So I finished my degree, uh, my undergraduate degree, and took a year out to focus on weightlifting. Um, you know, it was, it was a great year, but I love learning. I love knowledge. I just want to take things in. I want to sit back and reflect on things. And I just found I was a little bit stagnant because this wasn't how I'd intended on, you know, spending my days. I want, you know, I wanted to, to be taking more in and, and coaching was a really good outlet for that because I was learning a lot about coaching and programming and I had a great opportunity over that year to shadow some great coaches, but I wanted a little bit more. And so I started my master's part-time. I actually started doing legal and political theory I love philosophy and I love um, legal theory. I do a fair bit of reading in my, my spare time. And so I started this this course and I get to the, it was not quite the end of year one. And I realised that I'd actually already done most of the reading, most of the core readings just in my own time. <laughs> and so I kind of started this master's as a hobby and then I was like, oh, <laughs> I've already read this stuff. So I asked, I asked to switch to straight law and it was great. I, I really enjoyed it. it. It was unfortunate that, you know, it kind of was over the period of, of the pandemic. So I didn't feel like I was able to fully make the most of some of the opportunities available to me. Um, but, you mm. know, that that's one for another day. Yeah. And, um, you know, I think it's one of the most important things that you can really talk about as an athlete is that idea of identity and having an identity outside of the sport. You know, sport can be a really important part of what you do, but it can't be everything that you do. And speaking to that, one of the other things that you're you're doing or, or, or one of the other things that you've done is you're the youngest international coach and board member in British, British weightlifting history. So uh, tell me a little bit about, about that, the, the, the non-executive director for athletic experience. Is that right? For athlete experience, yeah. So I, as I say, I, as soon as I started weightlifting, I loved it. I, I really loved it. And I'd never, I, growing up, I'd never had what felt like or, or being around what felt like a community of such different yet like-minded individuals um, in this space all coming together for this one purpose that was weightlifting. I'd kind of experienced it with other things but weightlifting just really felt different to me and so I engaged with it very early on not just as a hobbyist but as a coach, I wanted to help other people. I've always just wanted to help other people. And so I started coaching and I started attending AGMs and, you know, I started being a bit of a pain in the backside to people, being like, maybe you should do this and maybe you should do that. And all with the best intentions, of course. Um, uh-huh. But, yeah, I I really wanted to leave the sport in a better place than I than I found it and 
I engaged a lot with the, um, the, the coaching team at British Weightlifting. And when a role came up for the regional coaching, um, I applied and I got the job. And similarly, uh, a role came up for the, the role of um, non-executive director for athlete experience. And I spoke to um, the executive management and, you know, obviously being an athlete and a coach, I felt like I had a, a well-rounded view of, of how the organisation was operating. And, yeah, I, I got the role. And I think it's a real it's a real privilege to me. I don't take that role lightly because... At the end of the day, your one role there is to have the athlete's interest at heart. And by athlete, that, that role doesn't just mean the elite athletes, you know, all of our members. What are the interests of our members and the organisation? How do we grow? How do we improve? And for me, it's it's, it's been a, a really great opportunity to learn but also to represent the people at my level you know I'm a, I'm a club yeah. I'm a club coach at the end of the day I'm a club coach every you know every week on an evening I go to the gym and I coach the community members and they're the people we represent and they get to have a voice at the table and that's something I'm, I'm really proud of and you know, for British weightlift, British weightlifting created that role specifically to enable that to happen, and so hopefully, hopefully, I'm fulfilling that. Awesome! I think it's just a wonderful story. You know, a, a random chance encounter at a sports fair has just given you all of this success and all of these opportunities, and the opportunity to really feed back into the sport that you love as well. So, I guess the lesson there is take those opportunities when they uh, when they present themselves to you. Yeah, definitely. I'm here with British weightlifter Jenny Tong, and we're talking about the psychology of strength. Um, don't forget that you can listen to all of our other episodes at 80percentmental.com. You can find us on uh, Twitter at EPM Podcast or on Instagram at 80percentmental, which is all words. Uh, leave a comment, um, leave a review if you want to leave a review, if you're that way inclined. Um, We'd love to know what you think about the uh, about the podcast. Um, so I, we talked a little bit about the the mental side of, of performance earlier on, just just touched on it, and I wanted to come back to that um, because you mentioned a sort of turning point, a competition uh, last year where your your focus kind of switched a little bit. Um, I wonder if you could tell me a little bit more about that, about your perhaps approach to competition and how it changed. Uh, maybe as a result of that competition. Yeah, I've always um, I've always been very self-reflective, and I internalize a lot of my emotions. Sometimes I think I'm rationalizing my emotions, and then sometimes I try and then just block them out. And what I realized 
quite early in to my weightlifting career or just weightlifting journey mm. was that I couldn't close my eyes and visualize myself making a lift. I couldn't do it. Okay. As soon as I tried, my mind would either go blank or I'd miss the lift. Nine times out of ten, I'd miss the lift. Well, so you were Not visualizing great. missing it. Yeah, I was trying to visualize what it would be like to make the lift and every time I'd miss. And it got me thinking more and more about the pressure I was putting on myself. I think, all things considered, I got good quite quick. Mm -hmm. I went from doing a handful of local, friendly, community environment competitions to suddenly my whole calendar was based around a national championships and it sucked the fun out very quickly and led to me putting pressure on myself based on what I thought other people expected of me whether they expected that or not none the wiser really but i i thought there was an expectation that i needed to be this good or i had to keep up with x person and so what started as a hobby very quickly became my whole life you know i was surrounded by it all the time and it just led to a lot of pressure and then the pandemic happened and there was a bit of like, oh, right, okay. Reset, refocus, find love for competing again. And I really wanted to get back to that competition floor. The first competition I did back post-COVID, I was so nervous. I was <laughs> so nervous. I was giddy. I was a little bit like it felt it I felt a little bit like a deer in in headlights but simultaneously I felt like there might be a little bit of expectation or pressure from other people mm -hmm. but I didn't let it get to me it, I ensured that the competition was about me enjoying being there and so I shook off that first comeback nerves. And then the next competition was the British Championships in late January. And for, for context, that British Championships was a Commonwealth Games qualifying event. And I was trying to qualify for the Commonwealth Games. I'd moved up a category to do so. And I had to compete against one of Britain's most decorated um lifters zoe smith she's i think she's only been i think she's only ever been beaten once or twice and i think i'm one of them and there was she's also a really good friend of mine <laughs> so it was a really high stakes event and i remember think going into it thinking whatever will be will be you can only do what you can do. And as long as you do everything in your power and strength, 
to lift that bar and keep your head screwed on then you you know you'll be you'll be happy you'll be proud of yourself and i when i was very mindful of making sure i was going into the event with that in mind because I could have I could have been served an absolute can of whoop ass by Zoe, right? <laughs> like if I'm being honest, she if she if she'd have had a better day, she would have served me an absolute can of whoop ass, and I can take that from Zoe Smith. So you kind of have to be a little bit reasonable, and I was really bored of being so mean to myself, and you know. And never really being able to be proud of myself or give myself a pat on the back, mm. feel the the congratulations genuinely from other people. I, I I was tired of that. I really wanted it, and so so so, so what, what, when you say when you say you were being mean to yourself, like what, what what do you mean by that? Like how did that how does that come well, out? Nothing was ever good enough. It's it was never good enough. It was like you, you hit PB. Well. What about the next one? You do well in a competition. Well, it wasn't good enough. Or you miss mm. a lift because you're trying to go maximal in competition and you know show your metal and you miss it. So it wasn't good enough. Everything just was never quite enough. And I was tired of it. And it was do, ruining my experience. Do, do you think that's in part you know, a product of that expectation? That you, you that almost imagined expectation to do well. Do you think that sort of pressure on yourself results in that kind of nothing's ever good enough type feeling? Yeah, yeah, definitely, definitely. It was um, whether conscious or subconscious. Once I realised I was doing it, my relationship with training and with the sport changed for a long time. <clears throat> for a long time during the best periods of my sporting journey career thus far I had anxiety attacks every single training session I'd be mid-lift having a panic attack I'd be on my way to training and I'm having a panic attack because I know I'm I'm dreading what's to come Hmm. but I had it in my mind that I was going to be disciplined I, I was disciplined enough to do this and I wanted the end result enough that I was putting my mental, physical and emotional health on the line in order to get an extra one or two kilos on the bar. And yeah, 2022, that that mindset completely changed. Um, I didn't have the best competitive year in that I didn't qualify for the Commonwealth Games, but I learn a lot about myself as a weightlifter, as an athlete. I won the British Championships. I had a great British Championships. Mm. And I had a great British Championships because I go back to that visualisation point. My mindset completely changed going into that event. And so at the hotel, before going to, to, uh, before going to compete or to weigh in, I looked at myself in the mirror, I remember it so clearly, I looked at myself in the mirror and I visualised myself doing, an, I think it was like an 84 kilo snatch that I'd visualised or an 80 kilo snatch and I made it and it was at that point and I remember it just kind of felt like you could have played Rocky at that moment. 
<laughs> I felt it was like a light bulb moment. I was like, I've got this. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've got this. I've got this today. And I left and I had the competition of my life. And to me, it, it wasn't a fluke because I then continued to have good competitions throughout the year. I Don't get me wrong. Mm-hmm. I lifted heavier than I've ever lifted in my life. It just so happened that, you know, I'm, I'm a little bit bitter that I didn't qualify for the Commonwealth Games. <laughs> but that, yeah, that, that mindset shift of just being kinder to myself and enjoying yeah. the experience really allowed me to be a better athlete and a much happier person. Yeah. That's amazing. Was it something that you'd, you'd sort of practiced or was it just suddenly you could do it? Suddenly that visualization came and, you know, suddenly you could see yourself doing it. Uh, practice. As I say, I've, uh, it's always something that I've been mindful of, of the fact that I can't seem to do it or couldn't seem to do it. And hmm. so I would try. And I would try, but what I was mindful of was not trying too much in the lead up to a competition because I didn't want it to become a thing in my head. Sure. So I don't even remember remember really what compelled me to get up off that bed (laughs) and go and walk to the mirror. I think I just knew. I think Mm. I just knew deep down that this is different today is different you know we've we've turned a new leaf um my mindset has had obviously been growing and changing over a period of time and that culminated in me being able to bring my best cards to the table on that day you know I, I'm really interested because it's a sport that it, depending on how you look at it it's a sport that's basically built on failure so it's not like other sports where, you know, I go play basketball, you win, you lose, you go training, you play another game, you win or you lose or whatever. It's like in training and in competition, you, you're basically going until you fail. Like that's the, 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 the point of the sport. So, you know, how do you uh, as an athlete in a sport that, that is sort of built on that failure, something that you, you kind of have to experience it, like how do you see that? How do you, how do you rationalize that in your own mind? Um, the aim is to <laughs> lift as heavy as you can without missing. And I know what of one athlete who could say that they've had a block of training and never missed a lift. Mm-hmm. Um, the reality is in competition, you are hoping that someone will make an error and that someone will miss. The reality of it is the strongest person should win, right? The, the, per, the best athlete on the day should win, whether that is through strength, through technical execution, through tactics, the best athlete on the day should win. If someone messes up, if you're the best athlete physically, but you mess up tactically, say la vie, you know? Mm. Such is life. Sport is sport. Yeah. The, the difficulty there is you can sometimes 
maybe go in with a false sense of security. If you are the better athlete, um, and, and this has definitely happened to me before, so an individual who was coaching me went in with a false sense of security that I was the better athlete, opened me too heavy, and just turned out that I was having a really bad day. So someone who, you know, in terms of pound for pound strength or ranking should have been below me, smoked me or, you know, because I, I bombed out because I failed to make a lift because it wasn't, I wasn't there physically to lift my top end weights. And that's where the tactics of it comes in because, as I say, in theory, it should be the best athlete but there is so many levels to it and a one mislift is all it takes to lose a competition to lose a gold medal to lose a championships yeah. one mislift not even a mislift sometimes sometimes it can just be a something as small as a soft elbow is in our sport you have to fully lock out your elbows when you receive a lift sorry my airpods just fallen out then <laughs> um you know there's a there's gold medals at Olympics and Commonwealth Games that have been lost due to a, a pressed out elbow and that's all it takes. So yeah. it's such a such a marginal thing and to know to know that your your whole training block is is uh, at the mercy of such small margins sometimes can psychologically be really difficult. Hmm. Is there a is there a switch that you have to make between a training block and competition? Like mentally, is it are there, are there different processes involved? Yeah. So the the switch that I would say comes um, from a, a strength endurance element to a you know the the, the strength endurance element. Your mindset has to be very steadfast you've got to have a lot of grit and focus if you're doing you know heavy triples you've got to stay with it mentally you can't check out halfway through because you're tired whereas when you're at a competition block you've got to remove any element of fear and maintain every inch of discipline that you've accumulated over that, you know, over that whole training block. All those reps, all those technical cues, all that volume, you've now got to narrow that down into this one lift and you have 60 seconds to do it and the, the margin of error is so small that you're... You're, the type of discipline you've got to have mm. is different. I find I can maybe think about two or three different things when I'm doing volume because, you know, you drop the bar and then you remind yourself and then you set up and then, you know, as it goes. But when you're onto heavy singles and doubles, things that you know are not just fatiguing but are heavy when you're pulling a heavy weight off the floor, you've got a long time. It feels like a long time to think about it. It happens very quickly, but you've got a long time to feel that tension. Mm. But you've got to be disciplined and you're going, keep your heels down, keep your back tight. Don't think about everything, but think about everything. 
and boom, then you've got to get under it. And you, and so everything is the same in terms of the lift, but it's so different in terms of the experience and quite often the execution because there's suddenly much more pressure as you build in. You can miss training, you miss training lifts, you miss plenty, you can miss lifts in the training block. But as soon as you start missing lifts in the competition block that are near or near about the weights that you're going to be doing either on the competition flat platform or prior to going onto that platform, it can start playing on your mind and it'll get in your head. And so there's so many psychological elements to it as well as physical. Mm. Yeah, it sounds like there's a lot of um, a lot of self-talk going on and a lot of, I guess, focus cues. So, you know, you talked about heels, uh, tension, uh, kind of reminders of the technical aspects. Is, is there a lot of that going on? And, and I guess the question is, there is, is there is there a, a, a possibility that you can almost overdo it with those sort of technical reminders? Definitely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Too many, where is it? Too many cooks spoil the broth. It's the mm. same thing. Like I say, it happens so quickly. You can't reasonably think about all of those things and execute simultaneously. Mm. Then maybe it may be that you should be thinking about all of those things, but you condense that down to a feeling or AQ. I as a coach always encourage my lifters to lift on feeling and I ask them to reflect on their lifts. What felt good? What felt bad? Why? Then we'll maybe look back at a video and do a bit of feedback because the the cues have to be intrinsic and because it happens so quickly, finding that physical cue where you are feeling through your positions rather than have to consciously remind yourself of what to do enables you to move through the lift much more smoothly and to then just if there's one thing you need to tell yourself just before you pull it off the floor then you stick to that one thing the rest comes from feeling so without giving away uh trade secrets then what would be your go-to mental strategies you know you talked a little bit about imagery and visualization you talked about some of those focus cues just now what's the sort of go-to mental skill or mental process that that you would fall back on uh, again either in training or in competition um muscle memory okay muscle memory i for myself and again for my, my athletes you should be able to feel what's good and what's bad and you should be able to very quickly identify what it is that went wrong and if not that's what a coach is there to remind you of but if all else fails trust that your body knows what it's going to do if all the cues in the world are swirling around your head and you're getting distracted and you're panicking or you've just missed a lift because you're overthinking, switch everything off and trust your instinct. Trust that you have spent hours, days, weeks training for this, doing this movement over and over again 
it's like riding a bike, just that the bike is significantly heavier than the last time <laughs> you rode the bike. Um, but that's it. That's all it really comes down to. Some of the best lifts I and other members of the gym have done have been at peak fatigue when you've got nothing left but muscle memory and instinct and everything you've practiced suddenly clicks and it comes together weightlifting when done correctly should feel like poetry in motion it's hard because it's heavy but it shouldn't feel hard because it's hard the only difficulty is that it's a heavy weight now if that weight comparatively compared to what you're maybe capable of is lighter then it should feel light and flowy and it it should have a nice rhythm to it it shouldn't be difficult because your body knows what it's doing it can control it and so yeah my trade secret is if all else fails not only do you just hope for the best but you trust that your body really (laughs) does know what it's doing if all else fails Trust your instinct. This is the 80% Mental Podcast, and I'm here with the brilliant Jenny Tong. Um, Jenny, I've done um, quite a lot of these podcasts now, and we often talk about the mental side of performance. Um, But what I come away with them thinking is I wish I'd had a bit more of a chance to really get to know the person that I'm talking to. So this is a, a brand new segment. And when I sent you the topics that we were going to talk in about, I didn't, didn't tell you about this. Um, <laughs> I've got, I don't know what I've, I don't know what I'm going to call this segment yet. I haven't got a name for it, but what I've got is I've got four different envelopes here and a set of different questions in each of the envelopes. You can see them here. One, two, three, and four. Um, and, the, the, the topics are deep and meaningful. Have you ever, uh, either or, or the last time? So I'm going to ask you to choose an envelope or an envelope. What do you say? Do you say envelope or envelope? I would go envelope. Yeah, I, I feel like you're right. I feel like it's envelope. Um, but I'm going to get you to choose one, what, an envelope, one to four, and uh, we'll see what you come up with. Uh, let's go with number four. Number four, okay. Here we are, number four. Okay, so this is either or. So a set of quick fire questions. We'll we'll go through as quickly as we can. Um, Honest answers, quick answers. Don't think about it too much. Uh, Either or, we'll start easy. Uh, Dog or cat? Dog. That's the right answer. Uh, Going out or staying in? Staying in. Uh, Ant or deck? Neither. <laughs> I was going to say, can you, can you really choose between them? Um, camping or glamping? Glamping. Glamping, okay. Uh, mild well, it's or not spicy? Very glamorous. It's, it's what? It's not very glamorous, glamping. Well, it, I mean, I'd, I'd rather... I'd rather do that than be in a tent in a wet field. I'd rather, you know, sort of at least some sort of shelter from the from the elements. Um, mild or spicy? Spicy. Uh, summer or winter? Summer. 
Uh, art gallery or cinema? Art gallery. Okay, we get a, a little bit, a little bit more complex now. Uh, would you rather give up your phone or give up seasoning? Oh. <laughs> <sighs> My phone. Uh, toilet paper, over or under? What? <laughs> What's when, that mean? When you have. Like when you hang a toilet roll, when you put a new toilet roll on the toilet roll holder, do you have it over. so it comes down? Oh, yeah, again, that's, that's the correct answer. It absolutely infuriates me when people put it under. Why? On what? There's no, there is absolutely no logic. There is no logic to having to pull down. It's inconvenient. You're inconveniencing your own sense. hand. It doesn't make sense. Doesn't make I agree. Sense. I totally agree. Um, okay. Uh, would you rather be able to speak any language or be able to speak to animals? Speak any language. Uh, all green traffic lights for the rest of your life or never have to wait in a queue ever again? Never have to wait in a queue. Yeah, I think i go with that one as well, actually. Um, okay, would you forget everything that you've ever learned or forget everyone that you've ever known? Forget everything question. I've ever learned. Yeah. I would like, I'd forget everything I've ever learned because I think based on chance and fate, the likelihood of me ever forgetting, ever meeting the people, the same people again would be slim, but I could relearn all the things I know. Okay. So approaching the question with logic. I like it. Um, would you rather your house, just going from the sublime to the ridiculous, would you rather that your house always smelled like gravy or always smelled like turkey? Turkey. Maybe it was turkey. Yeah. Uh, chatty taxi driver or quiet taxi driver? Chatty. Which oh, is really? unusual because it actually usually really annoys me, but it tells me that they are happy. If they're happy yeah. enough to chat away, then I know that at least they're having a good day, which yeah. makes me feel good, if not annoyed. See, I'm, I'm the opposite. I want to get in a taxi and just silence. Just <laughs> just get me to where I'm going. We, we don't need to talk. We don't need to make eye contact, nothing. I'll get out the taxi. I might even say thank you at the other end. Um, okay, <laughs> last, last one. Uh, time travel 10 years into the past or 10 years into the future? Ten years into the past. Okay, I'm going to follow that one up. What would you What would you do if you could tra- time travel ten years into the past? What would you do, or what would you say to yourself, or what would you change? I would give my mum a really big hug. I would find my younger self and tell her all the things that she I wish she'd have known then. I'd probably give her a few of the lottery numbers. <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah, if I could, I think the main thing, obviously, is, uh, is spending a bit more time with my mum. I was very fortunate to spend time with her. But I, th- I, I, you always look back. You know, hindsight is a is a wonderful thing, mm. and I would I would do a lot more and say I love you a lot more, and be more proactive in reminding her of that. That's lovely. 
thank you thank you for uh, for those answers and for uh, for taking part in the inaugural uh, new segment that I still haven't got a name for yet maybe I'll maybe I'll add a new jingle or something as well when I edit this together um, make it sound professional um I'm here <laughs> I'm here with uh, I'm still here with British weightlifter Jenny Tong we're talking about the psychology of strength um I just got a, a few more questions really and you know one of the things that uh, that perhaps stands out about weightlifting and you can tell me whether this is still still true or not is it's um it, it's predominantly I guess a male sport and it's perhaps thought of as predominantly a male uh, sport does that stereotype still exist do you think as a stereotype absolutely as a reality absolutely not the the reality is um that our participation rates have swung 48 52 either side for the past five years i believe uh we have a phenomenal phenomenal international female team we have british um history maker emily campbell who was britain's first ever uh, olympic medalist in in weightlifting um female 87 plus kilogram lifter if anybody wants to go and have a have a look for her she as i say she's not only an incredible role model to Two young girls out there, but a phenomenal athlete and and a, and a history maker across the board. I think she follows in the footsteps of a really strong cohort uh, of female weightlifting champions that Britain has produced over the past 10, 10 15 years. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the likes of Emily Godley, Zoe. Smith, Sarah Davies, Emily Campbell, you know, and so many other individuals that it's very difficult to say now that it is a male dominant sport because you just look at the strength of our female team and, you know, I could go on naming individuals. The reality is that when you go into schools and you talk to people about doing weightlifting, they're going to say, oh, you don't look like a weightlifter. (laughs) <laughs> what do you expect a weightlifter to look like? You want me to have a big beard and carry a dumbbell or wear a, you know, little little strappy one piece? Um, or they expect me to, you know, look like a, a very aggressive uh, Eastern Bloc female, which is somehow the stereotype that has been mm. um, you know, put out there. The reality of it is, is we come in all different shapes and sizes and that's the beauty of weightlifting. It's what makes weightlifting so accessible is that it doesn't matter what size or shape you are, how big or small, what, what you, you know, you can, there is a place for weightlifting, for the place for you in weightlifting. It's so accessible in that respect. Um, it is difficult sometimes convincing people that, women can do strength training and can do weightlifting it's it's less and less these days Hmm. you do i i experience it occasionally in the gym where 
men will come up to me and they'll be like, wow, that's so impressive. And they're just really impressed by what you're doing. And then someone else will come along and be like, oh, don't hurt yourself, love. Should you really be doing that? Do you want Do you want a hand? I mean, like, someone's just watched me rep out, like, 120 for a set of five. Yeah. And then they come up to me after uh, and they're like, do, do you want a, do you want a sport? And I'm like, do I look like I need a sport? Yeah, like, do do uh, what makes you think I'm frail and I'm going to break here? But I don't know what's giving you that impression. Maybe it's just yeah. maybe you just want to come and join in. But it's it's difficult in that the the sport itself, uh, from a coaching perspective, if you're from an athlete, it's grown m- massively. From a coaching perspective, one of the difficulties I had coming into the sport as a coach was that there were very few female coaches that I could role model myself on or who had, um, who, who I'd maybe would like to shadow or would have the opportunity to shadow in terms of understanding a little bit more about what the landscape is being a female within a a male coaching dominant arena. I went out to Saudi Arabia in 2021 to coach the World Youth Championships and I was only one of three female coaches, three or four female coaches there um, in the whole youth event and that's it's still it's still the same way and we've been as I say we've gone through a huge growth over the past few years in terms of participation and that's led to many more female coaches but I would say there is still a gap in terms of perception of what is a qualified or experienced coach I would like to think at this point I've got quite a high level of coaching experience and yet I would easily be overlooked by certain individuals in favour of a less qualified male candidate based Mm. on the fact that he he maybe looks like he knows what he's doing a little bit more and that's difficult. So uh, how do you how do you overcome some of these challenges then? you know of of being a woman uh, in what is again thought of as a, as perhaps a male dominated sport particularly in the coaching uh, ranks like you just explained um i mean my my belief really is that i don't have to prove myself to anyone particularly i i don't go out of my way to overcome that in any specific way mm-hmm. i'm just i'm just myself I offer what I offer and I have the experience that I have. If people want to engage with that, great. If they want to go with a less experienced coach who's probably going to charge them twice the amount, then, you know, so be it. But ultimately, as a woman in a male-dominant space, I think the, the one principle I've stood by is being myself and not molding myself and my identity and my approach to fit any box 
that someone might want me to tick or someone mm-hmm. might want, you know, this is how you're going to make more money as a coach if you target this group of people or whatever it is those things might be. I'm not really interested. And I just, I always say to other, the, the other women around me, you know, if you don't stand by yourself and and back yourself, no one else is going to stand there with you. Like people run away very quickly. And so as as someone who wants to implement change within kind of coaching approaches, for instance, or or leadership situations, being a lone female, being the only vocal one or the only person to stand up and raise your hand and ask a question can be very difficult. Especially if the other women around kind of back down and try and do the I hate to say it, but it's kind of called like a pick-me-girl thing where it's like, I want to fit in with the men in the room, so I will embody the things that that they want me to embody or reflect the kind of person they want me to be or expect me to be. And I always say to to the, the women around me particularly is, that is the worst thing you can do for yourself because you set the precedent. When you go into situations, honour yourself honour your identity, honour your approach and stick to that. And that doesn't mean to say that, you know, you can't hold your hand up if you're wrong and all women are right and all of those things. (laughs) What it means is that you should never change yourself to meet anybody else's standards or expectations of who you should be. And I find women women in sport, women across the board, sometimes unfortunately do that at the detriment of themselves and other women. Uh, so being a woman in a male-dominant sport, to me, the, the main thing you have to be is steadfast in yourself. So that, that confidence that you've got in yourself and your identity, um, and, and you know, from what I know of you, you are a very confident person. Like, where does that come from? Where, where does that sort of supreme confidence in, in yourself and your own identity, where, where, where does that come from for you? I can, I can actually pinpoint it. It started, growing up, I was, I was confident in a, a diva-ish kind of way, in, like behind closed doors. You know, I was the baby <laughs> of the family and I loved to sing and get my sequins on. <laughs> and... Then I had my watershed moment where I was like, wow, the world is so bleak and people are really mean and no one likes me. And I you know, suffered a fair bit of, of race, racial abuse growing up. I was stereotyped and, you know, marginalised quite a lot. And... Through my teenage years, you know, trying to quote unquote find myself, I realised that I all I wanted was to fit in. All I wanted was to be accepted for who I was. But I was never going to be accepted for who I was. So therefore I should try and be like other people. And I remember I remember being in year 
think it was like early on year 10 or year 11. And I was actually, it was a day and I remember we had like back-to-back science and I tried straightening my hair before going in. Obviously people watching can't see this, but I've got curly hair. And I'm trying to straighten my hair before going into school and I'm, I'm putting on my makeup and having this kind of identity crisis. So you're about year 10, that's about 15, 16 sort of age. 15, 16, yeah. yeah. I'm having this whole identity crisis. And my best friend at the time was stunning, you know, beautiful, tall, blonde, blue-eyed. And I just saw myself as this frizzy, umpa-lumpa, you know, an, an unwantable. You know, I, I didn't mm. didn't see myself reflected anywhere. I didn't consider myself as beautiful. I, I didn't see how I was ever going to flourish. I, I just I just had these really negative views of myself. And I remember one day being sat in science, uh, sat back on my chair, back in the classroom, and I'm looking around the room. And I had a, an epiphany moment. And I was like, no one in here matters. No one matters. Their opinions do not matter. In a few years, you'll forget their name and you will be left with yourself and your own thoughts. And if you keep thinking this way about yourself, you will spend the rest of your life believing them and embodying them. And it will be the death of that little girl and all her vibrancy you will dull her sparkle because of everybody else around you. And I need you to stop. And so I stopped and I started believing in myself, not just, you know, kind of get up and go, but more of an intrinsic um, belief in, you know, I get up every morning and I'd look at myself and instead of, being critical of all of the things I was seeing in the mirror, I would accept this is my face, this is my body, this is my life, and I'm going to live it. And from that has come everything else, because the opinions of other people do not get me through the day. The opinions of other people do not pay the bills. The perceptions of other people are not going to be the things that I think about on my deathbed. There's a there's a book called um, One Non and One Hundred Thousand, in which this man has this epiphany that there are one hundred thousand versions of himself that exist in the minds of other people. And I kind of had that epiphany moment at about 15, 16 years old that I would never please everyone. No, Not everyone was always going to like me. And that was okay. Because as long as I like myself, that's the only thing that matters. And so that's where my confidence is born out of. Because at the end of the day, it doesn't matter. All that matters is myself and the people around me that I love the most. And as long as we're healthy and happy, everything else is secondary. And that was, that was just like that, just a moment in school, having that really, because that's, that's a really 
that's really quite a mature realization for a 15, 16 year old to have. And then to be able to follow through on that for the rest of your life as well. Like that's a, a, that's an amazing story. I think it's obviously circumstantial as well. You know, I had a less than ideal upbringing in, in many elements. Um, and so I was always quite self-aware. I think I probably had much more self-awareness at that age than, than my peers did, which enabled that epiphany moment to happen. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and lifestyle kind of fed into that. I had to I had to back myself in such certain situations because you know if I didn't no one else would I moved out at 16 and so it was like if I didn't do this or if I don't stand my ground here what am I going to do and sit back and then what no one's going to come and rescue me uh and so that's that's where it comes from and I think a lot of people generally have that moment later on in life and in some ways I think I was a little bit uh a little bit confused because I still felt like I should be trying to fit in but ultimately was very grateful that my mindset changed and that suddenly I became a much happier person by virtue of the fact that I just parked the opinions of others <laughs> I, I think you know that is a lesson for all of us that we would all be much happier if we just park the opinion of of everybody else. Um, Jenny, I, I could I could chat to you all morning, um, but I'm looking at the clock and I'm aware of time, and I don't want to sort of keep you any longer than I said I would. Um, it, it's been absolutely brilliant uh, chatting to you this morning, talking about the psychology of strength uh, and lots of other things as well. Uh, and I'm glad that you're a dog person because again, that that is the right answer. Um, oh, oh, one, one more thing. If, uh, if people want to get a hold of you, if, um, if people want to find out a little bit more about you and what you do, uh, how can they do that? Yeah. So you can find me on Instagram at, at Jenny T 811, um, is where I do most of my posting and, uh, yeah, I'll, I'll be there. <laughs> Okay, so I'll make sure that there's a link to that in the episode description. So if you want to uh, to follow Jenny on Instagram, then make sure you do that. Um, it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you. Thanks once again for uh, agreeing to come on and talk to me. Um, if you have enjoyed what you've heard, then give us a like or a share or a retweet or all that social media stuff. Uh, You can listen to all of our episodes and subscribe so that you don't miss any future episodes at 80percentmental.com. Follow us on Twitter at EPM Podcast or on Instagram at 80percentmental. So when you're going to follow Jenny on Instagram, you can give us a follow as well. Um, And yeah, I hope you've enjoyed what you've been listening to i hope you've enjoyed the conversation as much as i have and i'll see you next time well i won't won't see you though will i because it's a it's a podcast Mm -hmm.